0: Uh, Mark 15, we're going to start in verse 33 here in just a second, go through the end of the chapter, and then next Sunday, I'm pumped up, I don't know about you, I'm ready for Easter, I've been looking forward to it for a long time, since last Easter, and uh, we're going to finish our time in the Gospel of Mark next Sunday. It's going to be really special, hope you're bringing someone with you, hope you've already started planting seeds, and, or maybe you're just working up the courage, this is the week to make the ask. It's a natural ask, a natural, easy invitation. I hope you don't come to church next week alone, or just with your normal group. I hope you got some people in tow with you. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, one of the most traumatic days of my young life happened in the fifth grade, and it was the day we watched in class, the movie Where the Red Fern Grows. And if you've ever been a little boy like me, there's something about a movie where a boy loses his dogs that just totally breaks you. And there in front of all of my prepubescent classmates, being all of them hypercritical and hypersensitive, I cried, I wept openly at the death of this boy's dogs, and uh, I tried to blame it on allergies and other things, but everyone knew the truth. Uh, it was a traumatic thing. Why would educators do that to a little boy? Put you in a position where you're going to weep openly in front of your classmates. I don't recommend it. But uh, the, what made the story so important, if you've ever read it or you've ever seen the movie, is the meaning of the red ferns. It, it's, it, it, it's sad that... Uh, The boy loses his dogs, but uh, when the red ferns show up at the end, that's the big deal. And in the book, it says that uh, legend holds that wherever a red fern grows, an angel has planted it, and that's sacred ground. Wherever you see a red fern, that's sacred ground for whatever reason. So uh, that's a big deal then in the story when the red ferns show up uh, over the graves of old Dan and little Anne. Well, you understand the meaning, the symbolism. It's not just that, oh, the dogs die and they're buried by the red ferns. That, I mean, that's true. Those are the facts. But there's a meaning to the scene. There's a meaning to the story that adds to its depth and its power. The same is true of the cross of Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you to tell me the story of His death, you could tell me details. You could tell me about His suffering. You could tell me about uh, the way He died on the cross. You could give me different, maybe you can give me time markers and setting and things like that. And those details are important. They're not unimportant. They're very important. But what we're after is meaning. What does it mean that Jesus died? What does it mean that He suffered the way He did? It's one thing to be able to communicate the details. It's another To know what it means and to know it at a soul level. And you gotta know that today. You gotta know the meaning of the death of Christ because it will utterly change your life forever. It's an invitation, it's a call to us to believe, to trust. And this is where we want to focus our attention this morning. I don't want you to just be able to tell the story of the cross. I want you to be able to answer the question, why is it so important? What does it mean? So in Mark's depiction of the death of Jesus, uh, his depiction is a little unique compared to the other gospel writers. Mark doesn't overload us with details, but he gives us meaning. Meaning. It's not that the other writers don't give us meaning, but this is really what Mark is focused on is the meaning of the cross. And my goal today is for you to be able to know at a soul level the meaning of the death of Jesus. Here's our setting. Jesus has been condemned by Jewish leaders, and he's been condemned by Roman leaders, and then Roman soldiers took in mutilated him, they flogged him, and then they mocked him mercilessly. He was mocked by the soldiers that whipped him. He's then taken and nailed on a cross. They pinned uh, large metal spikes through each wrist, and then they put his feet together, and they drove one more spike through the top foot, and then it went through the bottom one into the wood below. And they hoisted that cross up and sat it in the earth, and there Jesus hangs on the cross. As He hangs on the cross, the spectators on this day, they mock Him without end, without mercy. They scoff, they spit, they curse, they swear, they hate Him, and they heap suffering upon suffering on Jesus. That's where we pick up our story in Mark chapter 15. Jesus is on the cross in verse 33. Follow along with me as I read. We'll read to the end of the chapter. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. and Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. What does it mean that Jesus died on the cross? Don't just give me the details. Give me the meaning. Give me the meat of it. What difference does it make? Mark gives us four different scenes here. We, uh, we have the supernatural darkness over the land. We have the statement of Jesus from the cross. We have his death and the tearing of the curtain in the temple, and then we have the collection of witnesses in the end. In each of those four scenes, Mark gives us a different glimpse of the meaning of the cross. That's what I want to show you today, four meanings of the cross of Christ. If you're taking notes, the first is this. The cross means sin is judged. What does it mean that Jesus suffered and died the way he did? It means that my sin has been judged. And Jesus is the one who bore that judgment. So Mark, the master storyteller that he is, he gives us these pointed details that put us on the hill with Jesus as he suffers. In verse 33, at the sixth hour, that means noon at 12 o'clock, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's three o'clock. So for this three hour span, there's a darkness over the whole land. Now, Mark isn't telling us that it was cloudy and overcast that day. That's not what he's getting at. He's describing a supernatural darkness. It's a darkness that's indicative of God's judgment on sin. Darkness is often associated with God's judgment throughout Scripture. For example, the ninth plague on Egypt in the Exodus account. It's darkness covering all of Egypt for three days. Also in the prophets, they speak about this coming day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is preceded by darkness in Isaiah and Joel and Amos. Mark doesn't tell us what caused the darkness. He doesn't say, then an eclipse occurred. He just says, darkness sat over the land for three hours. God is the divine agent who brings this darkness as He judges our sin in the suffering of of Jesus. Here's the question. Who's being judged? As darkness comes over the land, who's the one being judged? Is it it the religious leaders who have concocted this lie and schemed to get Jesus executed? Are they the ones under judgment? No, it's not them. Is it the Roman authorities? Pilate, the governor, who sentences Jesus to death in order to save His own skin? Or is it the Roman soldiers who treat Jesus not like a human, but like a thing? The judgment's not on them. So who's being judged this day? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one under the judgment of God. As He hangs in the air between heaven and earth, He who knew no sin Became sin. He suffers the necessary penalty for lying words and lustful thoughts, racism and hatreds of every kind, violence and anger and gossip and slander and disbelief and betrayal. God the Son suffers the judgment of God the Father for the rebellion committed by those he would save. Jesus is under judgment. And how is He judged? He's not judged merely through verdict. He's judged through verdict and punishment all wrapped up together. Jesus takes on Himself all of God's wrath for our sin. There's an important theological word that I think it's it's good for us to know, to tuck away, to be able to pull out every now and then. And the word is propitiation. And that's what's happening here. The word propitiation. I want to give you a definition of the word propitiation. It is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath in full and changes God's wrath towards us into favor. So propitiation, it's a sacrifice. It's something that dies. Uh, Previously, before this day in Mark 15, that sacrifice would be an animal or it might be uh, some fruit, grain, something like that. It's a sacrifice that takes God's wrath. The reason you offered sacrifices in the uh, Jewish temple system was in order to pay for your sin. That sacrifice takes the wrath. The reason the lamb is killed is to bear God's wrath on your sin in full. And this propitiation changes God's wrath towards us into favor. This word propitiation is used in multiple places in the New Testament. A lot of times uh, Bible translators will not use the exact word, but they'll use a phrase like sacrificial atonement or atoning sacrifice. Let me show you one example from 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, where we find the word used. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. How do we know God loves us? In this way, He sent His Son. He didn't outsource this work to anyone else. Not to angels, not to prophets, not to leaders of men, not to us. But it's His Son who came to be the propitiation. He didn't come to do propitiation. He is propitiation he is that sacrifice on which the unfettered wrath of God falls and he drinks in full the wrath of God for Cody Busby's sin and for your sin and in that he changes God's posture towards us from wrath to favor that's what love looks like it's what Jesus has done for you it's what he's done for me And this is why the cross is so beautiful and so necessary. It's necessary because there's no other way for us to offload the punishment our sin deserves. There's no other sacrifice we can offer, no good deed we can do that covers our sin. Jesus is the only holy, pure, acceptable, sufficient sacrifice that can cover our sin. Cross is necessary in that way. It's also beautiful. It's beautiful because this is what love looks like. God loves us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's important to know this because it, it may radically reorient the way we relate to God. So many of us relate to God as if we have angered him and therefore we must win his affection through uh, good living and righteous deeds. We live with an uncertain sense that maybe one day God will love us. If I'm good enough, I've done enough religious stuff, I'm not as bad as that guy, then maybe one day God will love me and show me favor. But doesn't God's judgment of sin on Jesus, doesn't it show us that love is not our finish line with God, it is our starting line with God? You are loved. Jesus loves you. We know that because He he came and He died and He paid the price for your sin. And that changes everything. Rather than being good in order to win God's affection, I live a holy life because of God's affection. God's love for us makes us detest sin more and more and love holiness more and more. His posture towards you is not one of perpetual anger and disappointment. He loves you. And He suffered the judgment for your sin because He loves you. Some of you need to rest in the love of Jesus today. You've got to know that love is not the finish line, it's the starting line. So what does the cross mean? Well, the cross means that sin is judged. In Jesus, in His suffering and death, your sin is judged. There's a second meaning that Mark gives us. In this story, the second meaning is this the cross means that God is faithful. When I look at the cross, what meaning do I see? I see sin is judged, and I see the faithfulness of God. In verse 34, Mark tells us it's about the ninth hour that's three o'clock. Jesus has been hanging on the cross for three hours now. And Jesus cries out from the cross He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry from Jesus is met with more mocking from the spectators. Um, they tease him as if he's calling on Elijah. He's said something that sounds like the name Elijah in Aramaic, but it's not Elijah. They know this. I think they know this. They heap more insults and mocking on him. Oh, he's calling on Elijah to come save him. So then someone runs and soaks a sponge in some sour nasty uh, vinegar wine, puts it on the end of a stick and pushes it in the face of Jesus. It's hard to tell if this is an act of mercy or an act of continued mocking. Uh, In Mark's context, it seems to add to the mockery, perhaps. And then they say, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to rescue him. In, In ancient Judaism, there was this belief that the prophet Elijah who had not died but had been taken up by God into heaven, there was a belief that Elijah would return before the end of all things. Also a belief that perhaps Elijah was a help to people in times of need. So they're heaping this mockery on Jesus. His suffering is not lessened in any way up until the moment of his death. I want us to spend a little bit of time with Jesus' cry in verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words of despair are Mark's only recorded words of Jesus from the cross. Uh, He doesn't record Jesus calling for forgiveness of others as Luke does. There's no concern expressed for his mother as found in John's Gospel. No offer of salvation to the repentant thief on the cross next to him as in Luke's Gospel. No triumphant cry of achievement. It is finished, like we find in John's Gospel. Mark just gives us this one cry of abandonment. Why is that? Is that because Mark doesn't have all the details or the other writers invent details? That's not it at all. Mark, as a storyteller, wants you to feel the intense loneliness, the gloomy darkness that Jesus is enduring as He suffers on the cross. Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 22 is a really amazing piece of Scripture. Uh, The speaker in Psalm 22 is the king. It's King David. But as New Testament writers and believers, as they looked back on Psalm 22 in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, what they found was that it wasn't just David who was speaking. It was the greater David, the super David. It was the Messiah who came from David's lineage, who's the speaker in Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, the speaker describes intense agony and suffering. He's in torment because God is silent to him. He's in torment because scorn is heaped on him from the people around him. He's in torment, suffering excruciating physical pain, all this described in detail in Psalm 22. That's the psalm that Jesus speaks from on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a headline to a whole body of literature. So when we read Jesus' words from Psalm 22, we should feel the real loneliness and the agony of the moment. But Psalm 22 is not simply a psalm of agony. Psalm 22 goes back and forth between statements of despair and statements of trust. It's not all darkness and loathing. It is bold statements, prayer, beckoning God, come help me quickly, my strength, come to my side, and words of trust and triumphant victory in the face of all this suffering, trust, victory, Praise and exaltation come through in Psalm 22. Let me show you one line from Psalm 22, verse 24. The same speaker who's cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? Also says, God has not despised or detested the torment of the afflicted. He did not hide His face from Him, but listened when He cried to Him for help. So Jesus speaks, don't miss this, He speaks a line of anguish from a psalm of victory. It's a line of anguish from a psalm of trust. Surely there's something for us to learn there. It's our way to interpret our own pain and grief as if God is against us. But That's not who God is. We may echo the words of Jesus in our suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we put a period there and it stops and that line becomes this window through which we begin to view and relate to God. Our anger becomes our theology. We see God as a forsaking God, but look at what happens here on the cross and look at what happens in Psalm 22. You have to remember what God did for His afflicted one. He heard Him and He lifted Him And if Jesus, the afflicted one, at last knew God's smile, then can't we expect the same in our distress? Jesus, who hangs on the cross, the embodiment of your sin, if He found the grace and the mercy and compassion of the Father, we will also. You may feel alone, but He hasn't left you. And you may feel weak, but there is strength at your side. God listens when you cry to Him for help. He always has. And At the point of your cry for help, God may still have more hardship yet for you. Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's followed by more mocking, more pain, more shame heaped on Him in that moment. But God will never let you down. He always hears your cry. He has healing and peace and comfort and love and joy and new life for you in ways you cannot imagine. He's a God to be trusted and loved when our agony is at its greatest. The cross of Jesus shows us the unending faithfulness of God the Father. Jesus took the wrath of sin. God's wrath is turned to favor for us. God is faithful to bring us through. So the cross means this. It means that all sin is judged. It means God is faithful. Third, the cross means that salvation is open. Salvation is open. We get to verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed His last. Uh, that line deserves a lot of meditation this week. That could be your Scripture intake every day this week. You read that line and you think and you pray and you praise God and you commit your life to Him anew. Verse 37, so simple and so profound, Jesus with a loud cry breathed His last. That loud cry I don't think is inconsequential. After what Jesus had suffered, you might expect His life to end with a whimper, but no, He cries out loudly. In this final moment. It shows us that he's still in control of this moment. At no point has this gone outside of his control. He cries out and he dies. Mark tells us that at the moment of Jesus' death. Something incredible happens. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now remember where Jesus is crucified. He's not crucified in the temple complex. He's crucified outside of the city walls. But when he dies outside of those city walls, something happens inside the temple and not just in any place, in the most holy place. Just to refresh your memory, it's, it's good to think of the, that temple uh, kind of like the Pentagon. There's varying levels of access. It's, and, and the more important you are, by certain standards, the the deeper access you get into the innermost part of that temple. The innermost part of the temple is this room called the Holy of Holies, uh, where it was believed that God dwelt in a most unique way. Yet God dwells everywhere, God's omnipresent, but the Holy of Holies was a really unique, special place of God's dwelling. And not everyone had access to that dwelling. Only the high priest, once a year, could enter that space. That space was separated from everything outside by this massive curtain. Not just like a a little shower curtain. It's huge, massive, heavy, embroidered fabric from floor to ceiling. It's huge, gigantic. It's not meant to be moved or slid back and forth. It's fixed in place. Jesus died, and then that curtain is torn top to bottom The space that was previously veiled is now wide open to everyone. What's that mean? Well, it means that this is no accident. This is not some coincidence. This is supernatural. The fact that the curtain is torn from top to bottom. No man could do that. No team of men could pull that off. This is the work of God in this moment. That the curtain is torn in two tells us that with Christ's death, there's a new way to approach God. Whereas before God was approached through the sacrifice of animals, now it's Christ's blood alone and supremely supremely that gives us access to God. That the curtain was torn in two also tells us that the old ways of keeping people separate are done away with. Everyone will have access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you are a follower of Jesus, a question to ask at this point in the story would be this, does the meaning of that torn curtain have a reflection in my life? If God has done this work and now Jesus is the avenue through which all people have access to God through faith in Him, does my life bear evidence that this has happened? If the torn curtain means that the old ways of separating people are over, do you love people from all walks of life with the intensity and the value of Jesus? If the torn curtain means salvation runs through Jesus and only through Jesus, then are you working to to spread that message, to make it known that salvation is open to all those who are called by God, who believe in Him? Who are you sharing your faith with? Christian, who are you discipling? Not in some indirect way. I mean, whose spiritual growth are you responsible for? Is lostness around the globe impacted because of you? Are, are you praying for your missionaries? Are you giving to your missionaries? The tearing of the curtain has meaning beyond just a detail in this story. If salvation is open to all people, then we've got to give our lives to bring them to Jesus. So the cross has meaning. It means sin is judged. It means God is faithful. It means salvation is open. Finally, the cross means a new people are made. A new people are made. In this last scene of this story, uh, we see responses to the death of Jesus from three different people, groups of people. The first is in verse 39. It's a Roman centurion, one who's there by Jesus as he dies. Verse 39 says, When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Now we can debate about what the centurion actually means there. Does he really have a full understanding of who Yahweh is and who his Son is and what it means to say this is the Son of God? That's not Mark's point. I think we chase a a really negative rabbit trail if we go off there. I think what Mark is communicating to us is that the death of Jesus and the events that surround it speak to His identity. And here we have this pagan, Gentile, Roman centurion who sees what no one else has seen so far. This is the Son of God. Now, there's this sequence of events that may not mean a lot to us just yet, but there's the tearing of the curtain in the temple, followed by this declaration of the identity of Jesus. The Greek word for tear, rip, is, is, is the word schizo. So the, the curtain, schizo, it tore from top to bottom, and then the Roman centurion Declares that surely this was the Son of God. This is not the first time in Mark's Gospel we've seen this sequence. In fact, Mark's Gospel opens with this very sequence. In Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. And we're told that as Jesus is coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. Same word, schizo. Heaven is torn open, and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. So in Mark chapter 1, we have a tearing and a declaration. In Mark chapter 15, we have a tearing and a declaration. Doesn't that tell us something about the significance of the death of Jesus? His death is more than an act of judgment, though it is that. It's also a revelation of His identity. What's more, it shows us that Jesus' divinity is confirmed not through might and conquest, but through suffering. It's at His death that the Roman centurion declares, surely this was the Son of God. So, the centurion bears witness. Next, we're told of the women who witnessed the death of Jesus and His burial. We're going to spend more time with these women next Sunday. And they are incredible, powerful disciples of Jesus Christ. But for now, they are these reliable witnesses to His death in the exact spot of His burial. They are faithful, have always been faithful to support and follow Jesus, even in these darkest of moments. We've got the Roman centurion, we have these women who are his disciples, and then finally we meet Joseph of Arimathea. Mark doesn't give us a lot of details about this man, only that he's a prominent member of the council. That council is the Sanhedrin, it's the Jewish Supreme Court who sentenced Jesus, well they, they brought charges against Jesus that then drug him before uh, Pilate to have him killed. So Joseph of Arimathea is a part of this powerful body. He's a rich man, an influential man. But Mark tells us he's a man who is waiting on the kingdom of God. It seems that he, at the very least, is a sympathizer with Jesus. He understands a bit of the message of Jesus and is drawn to it. And so Joseph goes boldly before Pilate, asks for the body, is given the body, and he provides everything necessary for the burial, the linen, the spices, the tomb that was carved for him. He provides all of that, takes the body and puts it in. If Joseph had previously been a secret follower of Jesus, it was no secret now. He was openly and unmistakably aligned with Jesus. So we have Gentile soldiers, we have women, we have a member of the Sanhedrin. And they're all found at the cross of Jesus Christ. What does the death of Jesus on the cross mean? It means a new people are made Now people from a Roman soldier background, women who were lower than second-class citizens in that society, and someone wealthy and powerful like Joseph of Arimathea, they all belong to the same family now through faith in Jesus Christ. He's made a new people for himself, people of every uh, nation, every tribe, every tongue. He's made for himself a new people. And that's what this church is. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is has always been. It's a radically countercultural community in which we love each other in light of the cross. We don't show favoritism. We abominate racism. If our brother is cold, we give him our coat. If our sister is hungry, we give her our food. We value everyone and all life because that's how we've been loved by Jesus. The cross means a new people are made and God's people are those who come to Him through Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you a question. What's the meaning of the cross? The cross means that sin is judged. It means that God is faithful. It means that salvation is open. It means that a new people are made. Jesus looks on you with all your sin and rebellion and doubt and fear and anger and brokenness. Here's what he says. I want that man in my family. I will do whatever it takes for that woman to be mine. Maybe you've been told by others that you need to clean yourself up. Maybe you tell yourself that. In order for God to love you, you've got to make some changes. I'm telling you, you cannot be loved more by God than you are right now. And Jesus Christ on the cross bears testimony to this fact gospel of Jesus brings us in. He died for us while we were still sinners, and He has dealt decisively with your sin, past, present, future. He's done that to give you new birth into a living hope. That's what the cross means. Jesus died, and everything has changed. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for what we have seen this morning through Mark's words. It's hard to take in all that it means, all that it represents. But I know it's love. I know that it's grace. I know it's you coming for us. Father God, thank you for your love. Thank you for the cross on which Jesus died. To you, God the Son, we praise you. Jesus, thank you for laying down your life for us. Thank you for enduring every mocking word, every physical blow, every moment of anguish, and the spiritual torment. Thank you is not sufficient enough. And so we say, we believe you. We trust you. Our faith is in you the one who died for our sin and rose again. Thank you for this forgiveness and this new life. Holy Spirit this morning would you awaken hearts to faith? That we would look on the cross and there we would put all our hope and all of our trust for our salvation and our eternal life. Thank you for this new life in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.